0: Welcome to this episode of the Oxford Exxon Podcast. I'm Chase Parm, and today I'm going to speak with Mississippi Today Interim Editor-in-Chief Adam Gunnishow. He's been on the show a uh, a pretty good bit in the past, and we're going to kind of cover a lot of just Mississippi topics today. We're going to talk about the coronavirus in Mississippi. We're going to talk about the, uh, the legislature battle against Tate Reeves that's recently gone on as far as uh, how to do uh, more than $1.2 billion in spending. We're going to talk about the... Uh, the big welfare scandal story going through Mississippi and more. So I spent about an hour with Adam as we uh, again cover tons of topics related to uh, the uh, the state here and uh, a little bit about journalism, the way you can get your news, just news in general during uh, these uh, these trying times. A lot of newsrooms are uh, cutting back and people are being um, a little more selective about where they are getting their media. So uh, that comes up in a little bit on the show. Brought to you every single day by the Oxford Exxon Highway Six West in Oxford Speed Pass Plus out. Use it, download it, uh, get to know it because you can be safe with that. You don't have to touch much of anything. You can pay for your fuel. We'll be back on your way there with the Oxford Exxon and all blue sky locations in Mississippi. Also, we're coming to you from the Clark Ford Studio, 662 257 1900, Highway 25 South, there in Amory. It's Corey. He can uh, help you out. He can do whatever you need from a social distancing standpoint to get your car or truck to you. So, again, give him a call, 662 257 1900. We'll be back tonight. This is Thursday with a live show. We'll. Uh, We'll have some unboxing. We also are going to do some uh, taste reviews of Queen's uh, Reward Meadery in Tupelo. We have several bottles. right? not several. We have eight different bottles for them. So we're going to open those up. We're going to try those. Coming to you tonight, that will be on YouTube. It will be in a podcast form on Friday morning. So without uh, further news from me, without further uh, stalling from me, we'll get now to it. I'm talking with Adam Ganeshow of Mississippi Today. Adam to show now joining us on the Raptors Music and Food Hotline. Adam, last time we talked, you were just a lowly political reporter. Now interim editor in chief, you've had a you've had a busy month here, bud.
2: Yeah, it's been it's been crazy. Uh, yeah, it's uh, an interesting time for journalism generally. Uh, I don't think there's been a, a sadder or bleaker moment for uh, particularly print journalism. Uh, if you look at just kind of the state of Mississippi and the largest papers. You take the largest, which would be Clarion Ledger. They have furloughed uh, most every reporter or editor they have on staff. So those people aren't working or being paid one month out of one week out of every month. Second largest would be the Sun Herald down on down the Gulf coast. They, uh, their parent company McClatchy has filed for bankruptcy and they've gutted their reporting staff. Third largest would be daily journal and Tupelo. They have, uh, just this week announced that for the first time in their history, they will not be a seven day Mm -hmm. a week print paper. They cut two days of circulation. And uh, they also earlier this year went behind a paywall and laid some reporters off. So, you know, just the big three. And then we got other smaller newspapers. I think the last count, we had nine, nine newspapers across the state of Mississippi that had um, cut back print circulation or cut back staffing in some way. Uh, It's just, you know, it's it's a crazy time for all of us right now and and thankfully at mississippi today we're doing we're doing well financially and um we're able to of course boost our mission of offering our our articles and photos for free to any newspaper who wants to read them uh or publish them rather and uh yeah it's it's a challenging time like i said but it's exciting for me personally i'm i'm surrounded by the best journalists in mississippi it's the largest newsroom in the state and we uh we're we're doing some really, I think, important work right
0: now. Yeah, I don't want to get crazy inside baseball, but it's my podcast, and I'm, I have my own curiosity, <laughs> so I'm just kind of curious. Where do you see Mississippi Today kind of fitting in the media landscape? As, you know, or just maybe nonprofits in general. I mean, what are what are sort of the things that allowed you guys to to prosper and not necessarily beat or avoid some of the things that the other publications are are having to do, but at least kind of be a little different. I mean, you mentioned that it's, it's completely open season. If you write something about the chancellor, as long as I give correct attribution, I can take it. I can put it on rebelgrove.com. You can use photos. It's a huge kind of open source sharing platform like that. But from a business standpoint, how are you guys kind of fitting and making this work?
2: Sure. So, so we're a nonprofit newsroom We're Mississippi's first digital nonprofit newsroom, which it's nationally speaking, it's a trend. So, uh, you can, you can take any bigger state, uh, you know, the, the, the model we used was sort of, uh, after Texas Tribune, they're based in Austin they have Texas's largest newsroom. And so nonprofit, of course, meaning we're funded completely on, uh, donations from individuals, foundations, and grants that we receive from foundations. So, um, you know, Given given the state of of sort of traditional print journalism, you know they're they're for profit and there were always newspapers have always been majority advertising based. So specifically during the pandemic, of course, uh, as businesses, small businesses and large businesses alike are, are you know making huge budget cuts to tr- sort of anticipate or respond to the economic downturn you know advertising is something that a lot of people probably don't feel like is a priority for their business so um, that's why the newspapers have been cutting back so much and you know for us i mean the pitch that i just gave to you a minute ago sort of you know we we have the largest newsroom in the state in the state we have this staff of reporters and we're doing good important work we're doing that because of the business model our business model allows us as long as you know, people find our work and mission important and keep giving us money, um, you know, we're we're going to continue to provide the work. So that nonprofit model definitely is, it's, like I said, it's a newer trend nationally. And in and, and Mississippi specifically, we were sort of on the, the ground floor of that. And, um, you know, for me, and this is why I focused on this a minute ago when I said this, I mean, for me, the beauty of, of our work and mission, it's it's not just journalism. It's not just, you know, uh writing deep you know contextualized stories about government politics in mississippi but you know we're we're trying to help newspapers fill some holes that they can't otherwise fill so um you know that's 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 the mississippi today pitch that's that's why i'm excited to step into this new role as as editor-in-chief and um you know we uh like i said we're we're Working hard to to just do do best by Mississippians right now in this in this crazy time.
0: Yeah, you, you may have just answered this a little bit because I was going to ask you sort of what your overall vision is, what you kind of want your publication to be with the, with this new role. Because I'll let me liken it like this, and I, I think you'll take this like a compliment. And I, I get that they're a subscription service, but in some mm. ways, you're kind of the news version of what I get from the Athletic. You're you're not going to get a lot of small, short snippet stories, you're going to get more depth, you're going to get more detail, you're going to get more analysis and kind of thing, and you're going to get it in a very readable format because you mentioned that. There's no ads on the site anywhere. I'm on, I'm on your homepage right now, and I can't find an ad. So in some ways, it's sort of that, hey, we're not going to aggregate, we're not going to do some of these things to give you these little bitty click stories. When You open, you might not open as many stories with us as you do other places, but when you do, you're probably going to get some information, you're going to get depth, And you're going to get something you might, hopefully you haven't seen anywhere else. Do I kind of have that right?
2: You do. You do. I think so. So we launched this to be today's website in uh, March of 2016. And I was I was the first reporter on staff. So, you know, I kind of helped craft the strategy, that editorial strategy that we we've rolled out. And, you know, Chase, this is this has changed a little bit. And it's, it's currently changing because of the pandemic and sort of, you know, because I'm stepping into this role and taking a look back at the last four years and saying, you know, what what have we done that worked? What could we do a little better? Um again, sort of keeping in mind that the mission, our mission has been to sort of, you know, plug some holes in Mississippi journalism that existed, sort of bridge the gap between, you know, uh, public officials, elected officials in Mississippi and government officials, and the information that Mississippians need to make better decisions, you know, uh, in, in whatever they do, whether it's voting, whether it's, uh, you know, engaging with them civically, like writing letters, phone calls, whatever it might be right now, Sort of as we've just been talking about the last few minutes, you know, the (laughs) Mississippians need those gaps are different today than they were four years ago Um, because of, you know, the gutting of the traditional print newspapers. And, you know, uh, they they always, at the very least, did that day to day sort of daily coverage of whatever was happening at the Capitol. They did that really well or they covered the the big government meetings that the public can't generally attend. And so as we've seen newspapers and and those traditional print outlets, you know, gutted during this pandemic, they're not able to offer that kind of stuff in the same way. So right now, um, you know, I I became interim editor-in-chief about a month ago now. And uh, like I said, we're just kind of taking a step back and assessing sort of where Mississippi journalism is, what we could best be doing to serve Mississippians. And, uh, you know, right now, I'm sort of spitballing here with you because there's nothing really set in play and in, in stone yet here internally. But I mean, right now I'm looking at this saying, you know, maybe, maybe it's something that, that there's, there's a need here in this state for, you know, deeper daily coverage of stuff in addition to the depth and context that like you so eloquently pointed out, I mean, has been our bread and butter for the last four years. So yeah, it's an ongoing conversation. Like I said, sort of, it, it feels natural both during the pandemic, but also just because of this this transition and me stepping into this role in a new way. So, uh, yeah, you know, it's interesting time, and, and we're working through that. But um, yeah, I don't I don't think your characterization of who we are, or who we have been, is wrong, and that might, like I said, change a little bit in the coming days and weeks.
0: You mentioned plugging holes. Is that specifically on? types of content what what's failed or is that also geographical where you look at parts of the state that don't have some sort of other source some type of you know areas where they're not getting newspaper coverage and maybe you show some emphasis there if something dictates how, how does geography fall into that?
2: Oh uh, that's a big part of what we're doing so um, in addition to our reporting staff that we have based in Jackson um, and we cover State government and politics is the general, rule, I would say, but we have uh, you know, government politics reporters, healthcare reporters, criminal justice reporters, education reporters, um, you know, any number of things, environment, culture, any number of things, kind of like any any newspaper. But the geographic element's really cool, Chase, to me, because, you know, being one of the two truly statewide news outlets in the state, we have the only newsroom or we're the only news organization rather that has reporters based outside of Jackson. So we have two full-time reporters based in the Delta, which as you and everyone else listening knows, I mean, has been historically, um, one of the most sort of troubled, um, you know, poorest regions of the state. Um, and we could, we could have a whole podcast about why that is, but, um, it's also been, you know, ignored by most news outlets and, uh, you know, having two reporters up there is a huge part of our mission. It's something that we're really proud of. And, uh, you know, we, we want to continue to sort of help, help those reporters, you know, develop that Delta Bureau because there's a lot of folks up there and that, you know, have, have, like I said, been neglected or forgotten for so long. So, um, big part of our mission there is the geography. And I think, you know, ultimately our goal is to expand our footprint even more, um, I, my if I had my choice I think the Mississippi Gulf Coast would be our next sort of uh, bureau that we could create that uh, I think there's a huge huge news desert down there that's been left you know left by some of the gutting of, of journalism itself but also just because there's so much happening down there and you know if you're looking at the prosperity and the future of Mississippi you have to have to heavily consider what's happening on the Gulf Coast so um even though we don't have full time reporters down there, we do deploy our reporters who are based in Jackson and elsewhere all over the state. So, um, last week we had a reporter who uh, rolled out a three part series that he's been reporting for several literal months now about um, how sort of climate change and the opening of the Bonnie Carey uh, spillway in Louisiana had sort of uh, destroyed the Mississippi Gulf Coast fishing industry. Um, so that's that's the kind of stuff that we like to do. We like to get out of
0: Jackson and
2: sort of tell the stories that that are important to Mississippians, and uh, you know, ge- geography is a big part of that.
0: So, from a COVID standpoint, this has been obviously been going on for a little while now. The majority of the calendar year, you've been able to refine and figure out what your role is. What do you feel like your role is with with, with COVID coverage? I mean, what, what, what's sort of the overall mission statement of that? Because it seems like you guys, as, as you should be. You're a whole lot more data-driven than maybe a lot of other news organizations in the state when it comes to covering it. And from a, hey, these are the state numbers, what do you kind of see as important to, that you definitely need to get out to your readers? And I know you don't do this every day, but just an overall management standpoint. And then how do you balance that versus national or regional numbers when every state is so different? I mean, I look at these national numbers, and I go, okay, well, obviously I want national numbers to come down. But when every state reports differently, I don't know what the hell I'm looking at half the time.
2: That's right. That's right. It's, it's all so confusing. And even if you're like trying to find it, it's hard to understand it. Like even if you can look at the numbers and find the numbers and see that, okay, this is Mississippi. This is how many tests we've, we've completed. This is how many positive confirmed cases we have. This is how many deaths we have. It's hard to sort of decipher what's what. And so, you know, generally speaking, I think our our strategy and Mississippi today's mission on COVID coverage has been be the state's authoritative source on all of coronavirus coverage. And, um, you know, I, I just pulled these numbers for, for something else, and I actually have them pulled up here. I want to read them because they, they even surprised me as somebody who's been in the middle of this coverage and writing several stories and now planning, you know, the coverage moving forward. But since March 1st, actually March 3rd to be exact, so a little more than two months now, our reporters have published more than 150 pandemic-related articles. So, anything from political response, economic effects to racial and gender disparities in both infection and mortality rates, uh, how public schools are affected, how um, you know Mississippi prisons are in extreme danger, how unemployment has been such an issue. I mean, I could I could seriously chase go on and on and on about all these stories that we've that we've written because um, you know if if we're not doing it, then then who else can? So. Um, you know, it's sort of a two-pronged approach, I think, strategy-wise. Like we, we, like you said, we are focused heavily on the data, and um, the data is one thing. Like I said, sort of having the numbers in front of you and seeing what they are is one thing, but understanding them is another. So um, we have two folks on the staff: Erica Hensley, who's our healthcare reporter, and Alex Roser, who's our data reporter they work every single morning as soon as the department of health releases their numbers about you know cases and deaths and tests and all that uh our our two people erica and alex will sit down and spend at least two or three hours every single morning with those numbers and present them in some meaningful way so uh if you go to our website you can click on our COVID 19 tab up top and it'll take you to this page that will show you what they do on a daily basis with the data which is maps and charts um know you can very clearly see where where the most cases are where um the most deaths have occurred and, and there's all sorts of sort of other resources that they provide for us on a daily basis that's the first approach the second approach is to take a step back and say all right how can we make sense of all this how can we take these numbers and sort of show mississippians why they matter so a great example of this is, as as we know from the numbers that we get on a daily basis from the health department, African Americans in Mississippi are disproportionately both infected and killed by COVID nineteen. Um, you know, we we hear from state leaders and health officials. You know, this is, this is so sad. We, you know, there there are specific reasons for this, mostly you know being that African Americans are more likely to experience those. Uh, conditions like heart disease or diabetes that make you more susceptible to infection and death from, from the, from the virus. But, um, our, our reporter, Anna Wolf, who is investigative reporter. She's just, just a bulldog dynamite reporter for us. She wrote this amazing story. She spent time with the family of the first black woman who died in Jackson because of the coronavirus and sort of used that emotional, personal story as a springboard into talking about, why exactly African-Americans in Mississippi are more susceptible to this virus and why they're being uh, infected and killed at a disproportionate rate. So um, that's sort of the second strategy. This is one example, one of many examples of, of that second part of the strategy, which is take the numbers and then help people understand why they're important. Um, so, you know, those, those two prongs are, are great. Uh, we're now sort of, Chase, getting to this point that, we're now internally starting to have conversations about how do we continue to do that, but also think about the next phase of this. So, um, God willing, the numbers are going to go down here. Uh, they're going to start going down and, and, um, hopefully the curve will flatten as they say. And, um, you know, we, we want to continue to do the best reporting we can about, uh, the Mississippi need to know about what's coming next. So, um, you know a big part of that will be sort of continuing to hold our government officials elected officials count accountable in terms of how they're spending recovery monies and how Mississippians who need money the most can get it from both federal and state government so um, yeah you know like i said we're just we're in this position just based on who we are and the brand that we've built over the last 4 years to provide this coverage and to serve Mississippians in this moment uh I put us against anybody in the country in, in terms of our sort of, um, you know, institutional knowledge or reporting experience across the newsroom and our ability to help Mississippians understand how this, how this affects them.
1: The Oxford Exxon podcast is also brought to you by the Iron Horse Grill. It specializes in on-site large event catering for up to 250 people and off-site full catering services, especially beverage catering. One day we're going to get back to normal when we do, A lot of parties to catch up on. A lot of get-togethers that will need to take place, that will want to take place. Wedding receptions, rehearsal dinners, graduation celebrations, and more. And the Iron Horse Grill is your answer to be able to enjoy that moment. It's a one-stop shop for beverage services for a 250- to 500-person wedding or even a 3,500-person gala. It's the largest beverage caterer in Mississippi. It can service the entire state. So call Sarah Black at 601-398-0151 For your catering needs, and knock that off your worry list, let the Iron Horse Grill make your event one that is memorable forever. Uh, We're also brought to you by Dead Soxy. We've been telling you about this is an incredibly strange time. We're all living in, millions of us all over the world have been impacted by these unusual events, and the Dead Soxy team hasn't been immune to that situation either. Uh, They've uh, faced some tough choices and what they've done is instead of cutting costs and jobs, they're thinking about things a little differently. They want to keep their team intact, paid and employed and they need your help to make it happen. In the spirit of people helping people, they've decided to run a first of its kind support sale. They have slashed their prices site-wide $6, $9, $11 a pair. They'd rather you get their socks discounted so they can keep paying their team rather than worrying about margins at times like this. It's deadsoxy.com, D-E-A-D-S-O-X-Y.com. We're also brought to you by Nest and Wild. Sleep better with a Nest and Wild mattress. It's a Mississippi-based mattress company making a high-quality mattress delivered right to your door. They make buying a new mattress easy. Every Nest and Wild mattress is one foot thick, giving you comfort and support that will last. A lot of online brands sell an 8-inch or 10-inch mattress, but not Nest and Wild. Every one is 12 inches thick, they're all american made and it's a uh, fantastic deal because we're throwing in a podcast discount go to nestandwild.com order your mattress enter the podcast code rebel20 that's rebel20 get 20% off your purchase your mattress will arrive at your door in 3 to 5 days brought to you by pinnacle trust pinnacle trust based in madison mississippi they've got clients in more than 20 states advisors in multiple states as well founded in 1997 Pinnacle Trust provides detailed, specialized investment management, financial planning, retirement planning for individuals and businesses, and much more. At Pinnacle Trust, investing is treated like a commodity. Decisions are made using objective information and research, not emotions. So regardless of your level of wealth, Pinnacle Trust will sit down with you, listen to your goals, study your expenses, and put forth a comprehensive, detailed financial and retirement plan built just for you. Cookie cutter financial planners put you in a box Pinnacle Trust builds a box just for you. To learn more, go to pintrust.com. That's P-I-N-N-Trust.com. Mention you heard about Pinnacle Trust on the podcast. You'll get 10% off your first year's fees. And we're brought to you by Grenada Nissan. If you're in the market for a Nissan vehicle, Grenada Nissan's the place to go. They've got a complete selection of new and previously owned Nissan vehicles. Great lease deals as well. Been with us a long time. We'd appreciate you staying uh, loyal to them as well here in these weird times. You're in a, you, you want a Nissan vehicle. Grenada Nissan is where you need to head. It's Grenada, GrenadaNissanUSA.com. Grenada Nissan usa.com.
0: So um, obviously you're not an economist or an epidemiologist, but in general you've covered government for a while. How do you feel like the the, the government as a whole, Tate Reeves individually whatever has done with this because you look at Mississippi versus a lot of other states, it's not too shabby, especially from testing standpoints, different things. I mean, I know obviously every state has its own struggles and own things they have to deal with. But overall, how would you sort of grade the response to this point?
2: You know, looking at looking at Tate Reeves himself has been something that I've been focused on a lot. I Before I became editor-in-chief, you know, I, interim editor-in-chief, rather, I uh, was a uh, longtime political reporter, and, you know, Governor Tate Reeves was, was pretty much my beat. <laughs> so, um Sort of assessing how he's done has been really interesting because, you know, he is obviously um, a political guy. I mean, he's a big time Republican who um, understands that he was elected on the backs of big time Republicans across the state and across the country, too. So, you know, generally speaking, the Republican Party has has been more um, willing and sort of has been quicker to ease restrictions in terms of you know keeping people at home or closing businesses or whatever um but tate reeves to his credit has has done a good job i think of, of leaning into the health experts so uh dr thomas dobbs who's the mississippi state health officer has been uh governor reeves's sort of closest advisor through all of this and um like i said to to, to tate reeves credit um, you know, especially as you're looking at other Republican governors, particularly in the South, and how they've responded to everything and, and how they've weighed the health risks versus the political or business economic risks. Um, he has been a lot more, I think, deliberate about uh, leaning into the health risks. And, um, you know, there, there still are a lot of people in Mississippi who will have said and will continue saying that, that Tate has opened things up Back too quickly, and uh, you know, there's always going to be critics, especially of a politician. But like I said, from my perspective, I think you know he's he's done a good job listening to the health experts, um, looking at numbers. I mean, the number that, that matters most, the reason that flattening the curve and all these shelter-in-place orders, it, you know, were important, um, was to keep the hospital system from being overwhelmed. That's the bottom line in any decision that has been made. Is we have to make sure that we have beds and ICU rooms available for this, this great influx of COVID-19 patients. And in Mississippi right now, we are not even close to being at capacity in our hospitals. So that's a really positive thing that I think, you know, you could point back and say, Governor, you know, li- listening to those health experts, they, they've been strategic about keeping that at bay you know, the question is, as you pointed out, I'm, I'm not an economist, I'm not an epidemiologist, I don't know these things myself. The big question for us moving forward is, as the governor continues to loosen these restrictions and, and open open the state back up, will we have another spike? And if we do, can we handle it? So, um, you know, so far, so good, I guess, is my bottom line answer. But we're going to keep, as as reporters and journalists, we're going to keep you know, holding them accountable and watching closely to everything they say and do.
0: Maybe this is a question better, sir, for Erica, so you can say that if so. Do you have any idea why the ability to report testing numbers is so sporadic that we get tons of tests in and is reporting on one day, the next day it's not very many? Because, you know, so much of it is is—is this thing progresses is you want more tests and then you want a smaller positive rate but a lot of days we either don't get testing results or when we do it fluctuates so much because we don't know how many tests are coming in that specific day any idea why that as well as they're doing with data any idea why mississippi's kind of struggling with accurate how many tests come in per day
2: uh erica could definitely answer the question better than i could but i i I do know enough about this that i can you know sort of give a general overview and the bottom line is The state of mississippi and how they test i mean it's there are several different methods of testing and so uh really really four main methods of testing you've got the state department of health which can you know take swabs that are taken from mississippians and they have their own state lab in which they can analyze those tests and determine if if it's positive or negative case um you have hospitals the biggest hospitals particularly ummc and jackson um they can they have the ability to do that themselves so that's already two different methods of testing um then you've got private labs which um you know private labs actually have been testing on behalf of the state department of health so if the the state department has a big influx of tests they need to run they can't they can't really wait to run them so they'll contract out with private labs that can do it themselves um and so those three main ones, there's there's one other small one that's not nearly as uh, meaningful or they're not running as many tests, but those three main ones just because there's so much, uh, you know, so much uncertainty in terms of capacity and how many tests they can run a day and have it ascend, send swabs off to the private labs and wait for the returns. It's just, it, there's a lot of uncertainty in, in how the process works. Uh, and that's just kind of the nature of it. So, um, you know, and, and that's the thing about the, the positive or confirmed cases we have too. So like, I guess today, right before we're recording this, I don't know if this comes out uh, tomorrow or not. So this will be out, out on Thursday days, morning. It's all good. Sure. So today, Wednesday, I guess there's 180, 182 new cases confirmed in Mississippi. Um, That's weird because the number of confirmed cases is based completely on how many tests are run. Right. So if, if, 182 new cases is lower than it's been in the past several days but that could be because they ran fewer tests uh, yesterday than they had been before so it's all strange i don't it's it's hard for us to assess where we are based on that daily testing you kind of really do have to take it week by week almost rather than day by day to, to really get a good sense of of where we are in terms of cases
0: I sort of use that to transition a little bit. Uh, you published several days ago uh, an analysis about all the Tate Reeves, Philip Gunn, Delbert Hosman stuff going on uh, in the legislature. Because it's been, I guess, fascinating is the word to use. As um, Reeves has said for a while that he had sole spending authority over the $1.25 billion in, in relief funds for Mississippi. The uh, the legislature disagreed. They fought about it. They did all sorts of stuff. You know, Just from a pure 10,000 feet view, and I think a lot of people outside Mississippi, especially when look at this. They go, "Okay, Republican governor, Republican supermajority, and we're having this type of fight inside the state." I mean, just from a from a pure politics standpoint, this thing has been one of the crazier things to follow that I've seen in in, in my thirty six years.
2: Yeah, yeah. So uh, my colleague Bobby Harrison, who has been covering the Capitol every year since nineteen ninety six. Um, I was four years old in nineteen ninety six. That tells you anything. Um, he, he says that this is one of the top two or three craziest political stories he's covered. Um, you're right. You know, it, the fact that it's a Republican governor sort of pitted against the Republican legislature. So when I say legislature, I really mean Republican Speaker of the House, Philip Gunn, and Republican Lieutenant Governor Delbert Hoseman. The two of them, they were sort of working together to oppose Tate Reeves on this, Uh for weeks, Reeves insisted that that he should have the sole spending authority of that that one point two five billion dollars in federal stimulus money. And the legislature said legislative leadership, Hoseman and Gunn said, nah, you know, that's that's not how our Constitution works. That's not how uh, Mississippians should be served by this. So they they kind of took Tate Reeves to the woodshed and they said, you know, this this is what we're going to do. We're going to pass a bill that makes sure that you don't have the spending authority Um you know, there were it, it, it got nasty. It got personal at times, which uh, sort of to your question, Chase, I think, you know, a lot of this. It, it was more than politics. It was personal. Uh, you know, Tate Reeves, of course, was lieutenant governor for eight years, uh, worked across the building from uh, Speaker of the House, Philip Gunn, all eight of those years. And uh, even though they're of the same party, they fought constantly. I mean, over the biggest policy decisions, it wasn't. It was more likely they were going to have a big public disagreement than not on the biggest issues, and um, you know a, a lot of that, as we've reported, has been sort of Tate Reeves's heavy-handedness, and he's he's a he's a very uh, sort of my way or highway type of leader. Um, whereas Philip Gunn always wasn't that way. I mean, he has certainly been that way at times, but um, you know they they clashed all the time. So when when Tate Reeves was elected governor, that analysis piece you mentioned that I wrote last weekend, um, the lead on my piece was on election night in November when Tate Reeves was elected governor, you had all these Republican elected officials, statewide elected officials up near the front of the stage, listening to Tate Reeves, victory speech. And, um, you know, everybody was really excited and happy to be there. And Philip Gunn, who was about to become elected speaker of the house for the third straight term, uh, he stood by himself in the back of the room, just didn't, didn't applaud, didn't cheer, just listening to what Tate was saying. Um, you know, that to me, I, I, I hadn't written about that. I, I was there that night and I saw it. I mean, that's, that's how I got that lead. And, and I hadn't written about it. I had thought, of, thought a lot about that moment for a while, just thinking, you know, the, the, the landscape of politics in Mississippi that night changed pretty dramatically. Um, Tate Reeves was elected governor. Delbert Hoseman, the three-term Secretary of State, had been elected Lieutenant Governor. So, uh, you know, Philip Gunn, going into his third straight term as Speaker, had to have felt like he would soon have a good shot at becoming um, the most powerful politician in the state. And through this fight that, that I just kind of walked through, that the the governor versus legislative leadership, Philip Gunn just maneuvered it so masterfully. He he you know, was the public face of the legislative argument, and he easily won it, just easily, and to the point that, that Tate Reeves just kind of gave up and, and realized he was in a hole and wasn't getting out of it, so he just kind of went went back to Gunn and Hoseman and said, all right, I know y'all won, y'all beat me on this, but let's work out some agreement where I can get something. So um, it's been fascinating, you know, seeing that intra-party sort of... Uh, fighting Bobby Harrison my colleague has written basically that um you know Republicans officially gained their current you know majority control on state politics in 2012 and sooner or later it was bound to happen that Republicans would be would fight with each other in this public way um just that's just the nature of politics and um you know they've they've had that power now for now in a third straight term and uh big personalities, big egos, and a lot of uh, personal personal dealings with each other over the years, you're, you're going to fight and you're going to argue some. But Philip Gunn certainly won this this fight, and uh, as I wrote in my analysis piece, just proved to everybody that he's the most powerful politician in the
0: state. So $1.25 is a pretty good bit of money. Uh, from a standpoint of actually distributing this, figuring out where it goes, was this more of a fight that was – symbolic because of the correct way to do it or are there a lot of tangible elements that are in this too is who got to decide does change where this money ends up going i mean how, how much of this is symbolic versus
1: tangible
2: I, I think it's a good combo of both i mean i, I think philip gunn's argument and hosmans i mean their, their joint argument all along for why they and not the governor should have the spending authority was uh rooted in in the, con- the state constitution um you know, we, we hear a lot of, especially in national politics, a lot of referring to constitutional values and sort of, you know, the, the framers of our Constitution wouldn't have wanted it this way. Um, I truly think that that was, that was the tact and the argument that, that Gunn and Hoseman both genuinely felt. They, they were reading the state constitution that says very clearly that the legislature gets to appropriate funds while the executive branch gets to administer them. Um, they were reading that section of that clause of the constitution and uh making their argument starting there but I'll put a big butt there i mean this is sort of a tangible moment for any elected official if you have this massive windfall of 1.25 billion in federal money stimulus money that you get to decide how to dole out that's a very beneficial thing for you both politically and just as a, a leader in general i think um, you know, it's this was a, a big a big moment for for the legislative leadership, particularly Philip Gunn and Delbert Hosman, to to you know make some headway and to sort of prove that they're effective leaders. And um, you know, on the other hand, actually while they're making their argument about this, they started pointing to some of the ideas that Tate Reeves had talked about in spending the money had he gotten that authority. So one of the specific things they mentioned was that um, Tate wanted to. Contracts basically spend a good portion of that federal money with a third-party vendor who would then get to decide how to spend the money because part of part of this cares act funding the stipulation is if you don't spend all of that money so if you don't spend the 1.25 billion dollars by the end of this calendar year december 31st then you have to pay a good portion of it back to the federal government so State Reeves was arguing, we can't do this if it goes through the legislative process. We need to hire uh, an independent sort of vendor contractor who can help us decide, you know, how best to spend the money. Well, the legislature didn't like that. They said, Mississippians elected us to do this exact thing based on the state constitution. We know better than anyone else how to, how to spend the money because it's our jobs. So, um, yeah, like I said, you know, there a big part of this certainly was, was – You know can can you benefit in some way as a leader or politically if if you get control of the money and the answer to that is an obvious yes um but again a good part of that that argument was based in just sort of constitutional values
0: take a break in the show to tell you about community mortgage located in oxford memphis city county and chattanooga underwriting and processing is done in memphis so you're getting local underwriting understand your market leader in condo financing in Oxford, and the float down option where you can lock in the current rate. But if rates go down before you close, you get the lower rate, 662-234-2704, or J-L-O-W-E at communitymtg.com. Also brought to you by G&M Pharmacy on South Lamar in Oxford, also Tyson Drugs on the Square in Holly Springs. Both those locations are open for regular business hours. Tyson's is utilizing a walk-up window and g is offering curbside service there in Oxford. Both stores are dedicated to local delivery and still able to deliver same day as well. 662-236-2222. The podcast brought to you by Visit Oxford. VisitOxfordMS.com is the website. Click the very top to see how to support Oxford during COVID-19. You can see a list of all retailers, restaurants with curbside, with delivery options to help you out there if you need that list. Also ways to support hospitality workers who are out of jobs right now. In Oxford, between Tupulet and some other options that you have, again visit oxfordms.com. Podcast also brought to you by Special Orthopedic Group. They are open in Tupelo and Oxford. You can skip the ER for urgent ortho-related injuries at both locations. They're obviously offering virtual health telemedicine. Patients have direct access to all SOG physicians and nurse practitioners. Patients have 24-hour access to appointments at 662-767-4200 or sogms.com. No referral is needed. Walk-ins are welcome. And then last but not least, we're brought to you by In-House Interior and Design, 662-681-6241. You can call. You can text. They are available for you. I talked to Nikki this week. They have getting picking up more clients because people are home right now. They're seeing things around their house they want to change. They want to fix up. They offer new client gifts. They offer dorm room appointments whenever that does uh, come with discounts as well. So you can find out more, text or call 662-681-6241. Yeah, the other thing too is talk about the political favors involved when you talk about third parties. What percentages actually you get in that? I mean that that, that gets pretty tricky really fast.
2: It does. It yeah, does. Yeah. And you know there there's just there are a lot of a lot of people in Mississippi. So this is like the the behind the scenes halls of the Capitol stuff, but lobbyists and sort of independent contractors who literally make a living off getting these big government checks or contracts um, that, that benefit them in many cases very well. I mean, very personally on a personal level. So yeah, I mean, it's, it's part of it. Those, Those same people then in turn will turn around and write huge campaign checks to get their, you know, close friends or associates elected to office and, you know, for me as a reporter and as sort of a government watchdog, I, I, I look at that and wonder sort of, you know, if, if a certain politician wants to send this third party vendor, some federal money here, let's look at how much money that third party vendor once gave that politician earlier. You know, it's just kind of a, they call it a revolving door. Uh, it's a good analogy for it. So, um, yeah, big big part of just how government and politics in this state and every state works. Um, it's dirty and it's it's shady, and uh, you know I, I hope that we at Mississippi Today can continue exposing a lot of that stuff because it needs it needs some sunlight for sure.
0: I get it's only a couple months into his tenure, but how do you feel like COVID and the way things are going and being handled continue to be handling has changed the shape of of Reeves' tenure, and maybe will continue to do so. I mean, I hate to liken it to necessarily so a lot of other national things or presidential things, but I mean, you know, George Bush wanted to be a very domestic president and then 9-11 happens mm-hmm. and everything changes or, you know, Katrina or different things. If you want to take a little more local angle, what, what do you feel like was Reeves sort of goal? And then how do you sort of feel like from a PR, from an optic standpoint to this point, his, his tenure has shifted because of COVID?
2: So we're about 120 days into his governorship officially. Um, it's somewhere right around there. And, you know, I've, I've been really careful not to dwell too much yet on the politics of this. I mean, you know, people are literally dying and, and public officials are trying to do their best to keep people safe. And uh, we have to we have to determine whether or not they're doing that well or not. But um, thinking about politics has been a little iffy for me to this point. But it's starting to now when you're talking about how money is being doled out and stuff, it's officially time to really start zoning in on that. So this, this is a great question. Um, you know, I, I covered Tate Reeves every single day for, you know, two years just about and, and listened to every word he said publicly, you know, heard what he was telling people privately. I mean, just I, I got a good sense of who he was and sort of the vision he was pitching to Mississippians as he was running for governor. And everything that he did to this, to get to that, that governor's mansion was really based around two things. One, based around his record as being somebody someone who um you know helps build the strongest economy in the state's history so he's looking at budgets he's looking at our cash reserves he's looking at our bond ratings saying we are both fiscally and financially in the best shape that we've ever been in he said that line more times than i can count in the two years in his election so uh Strong economy, the second point he always dwelled on was gains made in public education. So, talking about uh, third grade reading tests going, test scores going up, or or graduation rates going up, rather. Talking about high school graduation rates going up, talking about general test scores in reading and math especially going up. Um, You know, undeniably, uh, you know, in the last uh, eight years specifically, as he was lieutenant governor and setting a lot of that policy, um, the budget and the state economy was in pretty solid shape, and so were public education gains. Fast forward to 120 days into his first term as governor, the economy is wrecked. Um, you know, to be fair, it's not, it hasn't necessarily been in his control at all. I mean, you know, it's, it's what it is. It's pandemic. No one can really expect it. But, um, and the second thing is public education, you know, advocates are terrified right now of how school kids missing basically a fourth of a school year is going to affect testing outcomes and sort of the gains that have been made over the last several years in Mississippi. So just taking those two cornerstones of Tate Reeves's rise in politics in this state, uh, you know, looking at it when he was elected on election night in November compared to now, uh, you have to just kind of wonder how that plays out for him long term. Um, you know, like I said earlier, there's always going to be critics of of his decision-making right now, whether he's opening things up too early, um, you know, how he's handled, you know, political pressures from both the national and local level, how he's, you know, helped small businesses, which are obviously very important to Mississippi's economy. Um, But looking at it in my mind right now, there's not a whole lot that you can feel good about if you're Tate Reeves, And again, to be completely fair, it's not necessarily his fault to this point, but it is what it is. So, um, yeah, I mean, looking forward, like, especially after this dispute he just had with the legislature, I don't see him getting much policy passed that, that he can claim is his policy. Um, the legislature just kind of put him in his place, uh, in, in his first 120 days. Uh, they were, by the way, prepared to ve- override a veto on a bill they passed to strip him from that spending authority. So, the deal they worked out ensured that he was going to not have to, you know, veto a bill and endure that embarrassment, but would have been the first veto override of a Mississippi governor since 2002. Uh, when Democrat Ronnie Musgrove was governor. So, um, you know, I, if you're and, t- and, like a, I said, and a there's same there's,
0: party veto with the, with a, with a huge majority too.
2: That's, that's right. Yeah. That's right. I mean, that, that would have made it even, even, you know, more historic and just, Wilder, uh, but like I said, if you're Tate Reeves right now, I just there's not a whole lot you can look at big picture, long term that that can feel great, you know, for your political future. But look, you know, there's there's the old political maxim: uh, Democrats fall in love, Republicans fall in line. Uh, <laughs> you know, there there aren't a whole lot of people who have ever loved Tate Reeves, even even within his own party. But he still beat a really strong Democrat in a general election last year. That. Um, you know, a lot of people thought he couldn't do. So uh, we'll see how it plays out. We're, we're going to keep watching it and following it really closely. But, uh, you know, I, that's that's the big question is, is where does Tate Reeves' um, political brain go from here? Because it's not looking too good for him.
0: Just kind of curious, last time you were on the show, you mentioned that Mississippi was the worst state in the union as far as bouncing back from the recession in the, in, in the late 2000s, 2000, mm-hmm. before 2010. Um, reading from Mississippi Today and, and, and just kind of understanding here, too, this tax deadline getting pushed to July 15th, obviously not a lot of money is going to come in prior to that. They talk about having to go to some rainy day funds to, to fix budget. Where is Mississippi kind of financially, fiscally right now? How would you sort of – Rate. I don't know what you compare it to. I don't know what the baseline is, but because of COVID and everything else, what is that really bottom-line situation financially for the state currently?
2: Um, It's kind of like everything else. We don't know yet, but um, looking at tax revenue collections for the month of April, uh, we had a story on this this week. Um, April, because April 15th is that tax filing deadline normally, Uh, it's not like you said this year, but normally April 15th being tax day, Uh, it it means that in Mississippi specifically, April is always one of the biggest revenue collecting months because everybody's sending in their returns and it's just a, it's a, it's a big month in this April. Our revenue collections were about 33% lower than they were last April. So uh, April, 2019, we collected 33% more revenue than we did this April. So, you know, I don't know if you can translate that across the board. We're not going to know that yet for sure. Mississippi state budget is really interesting. Uh, the The calendar, the budget calendar, is July first through June thirtieth. So lawmakers are now back in session in Jackson, and they're obviously every every session their biggest task is to um, pass a state budget. They have until. June 30th, technically speaking, to pass that budget. But because revenue numbers are so uncertain, they're they're having to wait on that. So it's, it's likely that they won't do that until late June. Um, and until late June, we might not have even like a halfway clear picture about where the budget is. But looking at some of those monthly numbers, you know, 33 percent, like I said, I don't know if we can apply that across the board. But, um, you know, that's that's just kind of what we're seeing right now.
0: You mentioned Anna Wolf earlier in the show. She's done a really good job with this. The Mississippi welfare story, scandal, whatever you want to call it, that's been going on for, mm-hmm. for, for a pretty good while. Do you think – let me ask it this way. How big of a story is this? Obviously, Chad White pushing this through and, and getting a lot, I guess, documented, accomplished through this. Just, just I think that's interesting just to watch someone kind of succeed through these things the way he has. But in general – do you think this is getting the public play that you expected? Uh, how big of a deal is this? Let's do. Let's, let's put it that way.
2: I, I fully believe that if we were not in, uh, you know, a once-in-a-century pandemic right now, this would be a daily national story that would last at least a week or two in a news, a national news cycle. Um, I think that's how big of a deal this is for us if we weren't in a pandemic in Mississippi, I think we would be devoting a lot of the same energy and resources to the welfare scandal that we are to COVID coverage. Um, I mean, it doesn't matter how you look at this, the, the implications are just so far, far ranging. You know, you're talking politics, as you mentioned, Shad White, a young up and comer, uh, state auditor who was appointed, who certainly has higher political ambitions, um, he's making a name for himself through all this. That's that's an interesting thing. Just talking about the the, the fraud here, or the potential or alleged fraud here. Uh, the auditor says that he has identified up to ninety four million dollars that they can't sort of trace uh, that that may have been misspent in all of this. Um, you know, Anna Wolf this week. If if you hadn't seen it, she did this great sort of infographic and, and article about like what what they could have spent money on uh, instead of the stuff they actually spent the money on. So like one of these things, and this is like the, sp- the sports angle in this is fascinating, but um, I'm trying to pull this thing up. But
0: Yeah, I've got it in front of me right that, now. Um,
2: yeah. One of the things they they spent money on was paying a, a mortgage for the ranch, a horse ranch for Marcus Dupree, old football star who of course played at Oklahoma. and um, <laughs> You know, she, she, broke out like what this could have paid for instead of, uh, you know, instead of some of that stuff. And and it was just really interesting to see how much money they spent on, on just very questionable items. And of course you got the Brett Favre angle. He sort of uh, has, has been tied to this pretty directly and uh, important to say that neither Marcus Dupree nor Brett Favre have been charged or indicted or anything, but um, you know, they, very clearly personally benefited from uh, the misspending of welfare money, according to the state auditor. So um, really interesting. There's, there's just so many threads here, Chase, that I just, like I said, if, if it were any other time, I think this story would just dominate not just local news and state news, but but national news too.
0: Yeah, the, the the Brett Favre angle is interesting just from the standpoint of it hasn't gotten picked up anymore when you're talking about one of the at least most well-known NFL players of, of a generation. And to his credit, he backed away as quickly as possible. Hey, we're going to pay some back. We're going to get some payments done. Whoa, 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 I'm out of here. You know what I mean? Like of all these guys, he was the one that sure. said, nope, we're, we're, we're going to move on and figure out a way to make this uh, this go away a little bit. I am curious. Southern Miss, obviously, because of the volleyball stadium on campus, all the stuff to do with them. Mississippi State to a, a smaller level. How big of a black eye is this, potentially, to those institutions?
2: That's a good question. Um, that, that's that's something. That's that's another thread here, just the university angle. Um, I I don't know. I mean, it's it's not a good look. I can tell you that. But you know, as, as we're saying, you know, maybe this story isn't getting the attention because of the pandemic they might be saying the same thing and they they could be very happy about that. Um, you know, it's, it's, uh, I don't know. You know, universities are very political by nature. I've, I've been on your podcast at least twice now talking about that very directly. Yes. And, um, you know, it's, it's just hard to, at this point just because of the pandemic, it's hard to even understand where people are falling generally speaking in terms of public response to this kind of stuff. Um, but, you know, I, like I said, it's not a good look if you're Southern Miss. There are a couple other universities who also receive some money, not not to the same extent that Southern Miss did. But, um, you know, it's it's also really interesting just because I know that a lot, of, a lot of the public universities in Mississippi are looking at this pandemic as a possible just, you know, gutting blow to uh, their budgets and sort of their livelihoods. Um, you know, if, if you're Southern Miss, I, I know that, they're in the same boat everyone else is and they're trying to figure out how they're going to survive this financially. Um, You know, thinking about $5 million, you may end up having to pay back to the department of human services or the federal government because you've got welfare money to build a volleyball center is not, not a great idea at the moment. So we'll see.
0: As editor, when, when do you, or maybe it's now and it's just waiting on news to happen. But as far as that, the institutions, the colleges, the universities, whether they're coming back in the fall, how they're doing budget cuts, when does that sort of go to the forefront from a media standpoint on when that becomes one of the bigger stories that that you probably need to shift to?
2: It's interesting because, you know, of course this week, you know, we saw California public universities said they were not going to resume in-person teaching in the fall, uh, right before you called me today, I saw a press release from Mississippi state. Mark Keenum says that they are planning mm-hmm. to come back in the fall. I guess we saw something similar from Ole Miss, uh, last week maybe, but, um, I don't know. I mean, everything's so fluid, you know, I mean, it, there, there could be another spike. We, we might have another curve that starts to take effect, you know, going into August, September. And if that happens, you have to believe that they're going to cancel class in the moment's notice. So, uh, coverage of all this, but more specifically just through the, the complete, you know, ramifications of decisions that are made by elected officials, government officials, university leaders. I mean, you just, you name it. And it's just so uncertain right now. So we're, we're watching it. You know, we're trying to keep track of what everybody's saying as we go along, just with the understanding that it could change on a moment's notice.
0: Have you watched any Korean baseball or are you waiting on something in America?
2: (laughs) Man, I, I I tried to I, I I don't typically stay up too late, but uh, I've I've been watching a little bit. Um, definitely watching the news about MLB's possible return. Um, you know, it's it's a. Uh, I, I think I said this last time we talked. I just it's it's a sad thing for me. I'm a huge baseball fan, big Red Sox fan, and um, yeah, huge Ole Miss baseball fan. It's just it's just a sad time without it. Uh, the Korean baseball is not good enough just point blank Ooh, so okay. um you know it's, it's better than nothing i guess but um i don't know i was watching um <laughs> i was watching the broadcast the other night when um uh, what's his name trevor the pitcher whose number got broadcast to the world on facetime espn but um he pitches for the reds God, his last name yeah trevor bauer um you know that's been interesting. I, I'm more interested in seeing sort of the live interviews that they're doing with the MLB players during those Korean baseball games than I am about watching the baseball games. But uh, I've been I've been watching a lot of replays and um, the other the other day I I got really just desperate and um, turned on the Sunday game of the LSU Ole Miss series last year down in Baton Rouge that mm-hmm. uh, me and my brother actually drove down for uh, which. as as everybody remembers, was just an insane baseball game. Up up by four runs with two outs, nobody on in the bottom of the ninth, and LSU came back and sent it to extras. But it was, yeah, stuff like that, that's getting me through. I'm just trying to make it, and like I said, keeping a close eye on MLB developments. It looks like like everybody's pretty hopeful that they're going to play some baseball this year, uh, which is great news for me.
0: Would you be comfortable going to a game right now? No.
2: Okay. I've I've actually had that conversation several times with friends. Just you know I'm I'm also thinking about football in the fall and a mm-hmm. season ticket holder. I don't don't really ever miss a home game and I even go to most of the away games. I just I don't know. I just I don't think it's responsible and it's it's not necessarily about me. Uh, it's about, you know, my family and friends and I don't want to spread the disease and or the virus and, and give it to somebody else. It's just I would be just as happy watching it on TV. I'm not usually this way. I would much prefer to be at a game in person always. But I, at this point, I would be just as happy watching it on TV from the safety and security of my living room and, instead of, you know, going up and, and possibly spreading the virus. So um, we'll see. I, I Personally, that's just my thing. I, I get that if people want to go and wear a mask or stay separated, that's that's fine, I guess. But um, I'll, I'll watch on TV.
0: Well, I appreciate the uh, the time. You got a press conference, I assume, here coming up. Uh, Tate Reeves still doing the daily things.
2: Oh yeah, he's he's been doing that every day. And that's that's not a thing. He deserves some credit for that. He's been very transparent, and his his staff has been easy to work with. They they know that you know uh, transparency right now is kind of the most important thing they can do, and they've focused on it. So kudos to them for that.
0: Well, I appreciate it, bud. Good work, and we'll uh, we'll talk again.
2: Thanks, Chase. Good talking to you.